This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Welcome to the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. The Constitution 128th Amendment Bill, popularly known as the Women's Reservation Bill, was passed by both houses of the Parliament last month. The Nari Shakti Vandan Adhiniyam, as the bill is now known, seeks to reserve 33% of seats in the Lok Sabha and all state legislative assemblies for women. It has taken the country over 25 years to pass this bill after it was first introduced in the Lok Sabha in 1996 by the then Devagauda-led United Front government. At that time, it was heatedly opposed and subsequently, despite being reintroduced several times, the bill was not passed until this year. In 1993, however, then Prime Minister Narishima Rao brought in bills which reserved one-third of all seats and chairperson posts for women in rural and urban local bodies. These bills were passed and became laws, and today our country has nearly 15 lakh elected women representatives in panchayats and other local bodies. The representation of women in our parliament, however, is dismal, just about 15%, lower even than Pakistan and Kenya. Why is women's reservation in parliament and state legislatures important? What has been the experience of elected women representatives in local bodies? What are the changes they have managed to bring about? What are the barriers to women entering the political sphere? And how will this bill, which is not going to be implemented in the immediate future, pan out? We delve into these issues and more with Janaki Nair, a retired professor of history from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Good morning and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Professor Janaki. Hi, good morning. Professor, could you explain to us about the history of the Women's Reservation Bill in India? Uh, sure. It's perhaps one of the few uh, legislations that has taken a very, very long time to be passed, uh, more than 27 years, for various reasons, which I, uh, I'll give some idea of shortly. It has been passed rather hastily in the last uh, special session of the parliament. But let me say that this uh, story begins as early as uh, 1996 uh, in the formulation of the 81st uh, Constitutional Amendment Act, which allowed for uh, reservations for women in parliament and legislatures up to uh, 33% of all seats. And uh, of course, it was bitterly opposed at that time, particularly by those parties which had gained the most from a large representation of other backward classes, the uh, Janata Dal, uh, United, and various other, and RJD and so on. Uh, And the argument was that uh, they saw the women's bill as somehow undercutting the gains that had been made by other backward classes since the 1980s. Now, we know that the other other backward classes, particularly in northern India, but also in many other parts of India, benefited a great deal from their, uh, you know, um, political presence uh, uh, on the ground and were able to translate that into uh, votes for parliament and legislatures to the extent that you had a parliament by the 1990s that was uh, 
almost 40% are the backward classes. So at the time that this uh, women's reservation bill was presented in 1996, there was a very high proportion of OBC men who were represented both in uh, parliament and in legislatures. And this has been actually shown by many political scientists, including uh, importantly, Christoph Jaffrello. So this bill uh, was, of course, mocked uh, as uh, something that would bring Balkati women, Parkati women, as uh, Sharad Yadav then famously put it, bringing in upper caste, upper elite, uh, elite women into the legislature and parliament. They saw it as a sinister move to undercut the presence and importance of OBC men. And the women's movement was at that point somewhat divided about whether or not they should consider the question of caste reservations within women's reservations. But let me back up here and say that uh, the state I'm speaking from and the state I understand the best, which is Karnataka, has had a longer history of reservations for women. And they had actually managed to accommodate women's reservations within a matrix of reservations for uh, other backward classes and for SC and ST. Uh, in the uh, 93, um, uh, prior to even 93, uh, that is to say in the local bodies. And that had mixed uh, outcomes. I say mix mixed outcomes because of course to some extent the uh, women who got elected to Panchayat Raj institutions were in some ways proxies, people who stood for or were placeholders for men who were the real politicians as it were. Uh, but the opportunities that it provided for women to be politicized were enormous. And this, I think, a study in which both uh, Mary John and I uh, ourselves undertook in 2002 of these uh, uh, urban local bodies and uh, uh, panchayats showed this phenomenon very clearly. In other words, not all women are proxies uh, and not all proxies are inheritors in the sense of there being, you know, somebody who's inheriting a a political legacy, and there was a great deal of um, virtue in the political presence of women in these institutions. There was a great deal of politicization. So, uh, I mean, to cut a long story short, this uh, this 81st Amendment bill has uh, seen various iterations in 1998, 1999, 2008, 2010. Finally, it was passed in the Lok Sabha but was not able to be presented in the Rajya Sabha. Uh, sorry, it was passed in the Rajya Sabha, but not able to be presented in the Lok Sabha. And uh, the position of women MPs in the parliament today is something like 14.4%, which is a miserable showing compared to many other countries in the world. We are something like 148 out of 193 countries in terms of women's representation in parliamentary institutions. We have not done very well uh, on this front. Um, that's just to give you the background. Tell us a little bit about what you mentioned, ma'am. Uh, uh, it's been now, what, 30 years since women's reservations were established in panchayats and local bodies. And you were telling us a little bit about Karnataka's experience with this. 
uh, have there been overall studies have there been studies in other parts of india that have showed how women have fared as elected representatives you said in many cases they were proxies but there were also cases where um, you know their being in poli- in the political sphere was significant how has this panned out in panchayats in the country yeah uh, um i'm glad you asked this question because uh, there are really very mixed outcomes as i said uh partly because it on the one hand for example let me talk about karnataka uh, the proportion of women in panchayati raj institutions believe it or not uh, is something like 46% which is well over the designated 33% so obviously women are getting put forward as candidates in a number of institutions a uh, number of situations for a variety of reasons and uh, obviously they are winning as well so clearly something is shaking and moving and uh, there have been groups and the government agencies also which have been engaged in training women for a political life of course as uh, uh, as we all know feminists have been saying for a long time that the participation of women in politics will only really improve if they have adequate support for their domestic chores uh, for relief as it were from domestic chores particularly in rural uh, settings the other kind of opposition to women in um, urban local and rural uh, bodies has come from caste equations in different locations where upper caste men in particular have resented the rise of lower caste women uh, men also but uh, especially women and have tried to deny them their legitimate space so there are many instances of this kind of opposition as well but by and large i think the presence of women in urban local bodies and rural panchayats and so on has been much more accepted it has become part of the common sense as it were due to a long history of reservations having said that uh, the more interesting question to ask would be you know does the representation the increased representation of women in these uh, bodies actually uh, translate into a representation of issues related to women now for example would there be um, you know a greater focus and interest on uh, in uh, providing safe and secure uh, you know uh, spaces for toilets uh, uh, availability of drinking water and so on i think that has not been conclusively proved but definitely to some extent the presence of women in panchayats has uh, has increased the possibility of raising issues related particularly to women's problems in these in these uh, locations so i would say that um, um, what we are learning from those who have studied the impact of uh, women's reservation at the in the local bodies is that it is a very positive and necessary uh, step that was taken and that it will take some time uh, as i said to train women for political life but also i would insist some sort of focus and uh, you know some sort of interest in reallocating domestic work which is going to take a much longer and a much bigger social revolution that's not something that can be legislated as you know that is going to require a different kind of inter- intervention because the obstacles to women participating in political life are many and one of them is um the fact that they have an undue burden of domestic work 
Uh, and you know, one of the interesting things that our own study of open lo urban local bodies in Bangalore and Delhi revealed is that those women who are successful in urban local bodies are those women who are in their stage of life, um, who have gone past the childbearing years, child-rearing years, and are actually in a position of being like, say, mothers-in-law, and who have some other kind of uh, woman in the household who takes care of domestic jobs, and uh, simultaneously women who have had some kind of godfather, as they kept calling it, you know, somebody in politics who was willing to nurture them uh, and see that they actually improved as political beings. So uh, that's what I would say um, uh, that some of the studies are revealing. So primarily older women who have possibly children who are already grown, right? Yeah, or people, there were in some cases women who were also unmarried and who uh, were younger, uh, you know, who, who didn't have those kinds of household, household responsibilities. But this freedom from household responsibilities appeared to be a very important factor. Right. Professor, tell us a little bit about uh, what you talked about a little earlier, that one, one of the issues raised by the opposition uh, uh, now has been the question of the sub-quota for women, for OBCs within the women's reservation. Could you talk to us a little more about this? Yes. As I said, at first, the women's uh, movement was uh, reluctant to take on the question of sub-quotas because it, it was felt that this was another way of delaying women's quotas because in order to implement sub-quotas, you would need to have a caste census, you would have to determine you know, what the, uh, the proportion of OBCs was in the population of each state and so on and so forth. Now, of course, we are at a different moment in our history. As you know, there is talk of a possible caste census. There is already caste survey results of one state at least being put out in the public realm. So um, um, at that time, it was seen as, uh, as I said, there was a very big and very important debate that uh, occurred between feminists. Um, uh, and uh, there was a rather divided opinion about whether the subcaste question should be accommodated as a demand. Uh, sub, sorry, subquota uh, should be uh, accommodated as a demand. But as I said, we have a good example of how the subquota question has been dealt with in uh, some of the urban local bodies, Karnataka being a good example. Um, it would require... So, so the interesting thing about this... Um, no, so, sorry, let me back up here. The, the current position, I would say, is that more uh, uh, people within the women's movement are willing to accept some kind of possible sub-quota uh, within women's reservation because they also acknowledge that it could be a situation in which uh, caste is sort of played off against gender and that it would be a, you know, um, it would be something that uh, women would lose out on if they don't actually acknowledge the importance and necessity of um, sub-quota in the women's reservation uh, to legislatures and parliament. Having said that, I mentioned a little earlier that, of course, the OBC presence of men in the legislatures and parliament has increased without any provision of subquotas or quotas of any kind, which clearly indicates that there have been political processes which have enabled this 
presence and uh, they have been taken advantage of by men. So this brings me to what I think is a very important and interesting uh, observation about the Women's Reservation Bill, which is I feel all the political parties and our current uh, ruling party is a good example. In the last six months before they are due to be re-elected, I mean, uh, to, due to stand for election, again, they have introduced the Women's Bill when they had almost nine and a half years to think about their commitment to women's representat representation in which is in parliament. Um, and of course, they are, they are uh, portraying themselves as the most important uh, sort of supporters of women's, uh, you know, reservation in political life. Uh, but what were they doing for nine and a half years? So it is a, it's a question to ask that, you know, all those who are shouting loud and long about women's uh, rights have actually uh, revealed that they will uh, actually field candidates who are women from their own parties only if that particular disability of having women standing for elections will be imposed on all parties. So only if it is legislation which actually, you know, is uh, uh, going to be a disability for all political parties, only in that kind of playing field uh, will they actually field women who, as candidates. Because otherwise, what's stopping the par parties from fielding candidates? What's stopping the parties from training women for political life, etc.? I mean, these are legitimate questions that we can ask. And I don't think, uh, because the women's movement has been autonomous, mostly independent of what uh, uh, exists on the ground by way of political parties. We've not seen that kind of exertion of um, pressure on political parties as has been exerted by caste groupings. So if there's a visibility of caste in the legislature and parliament, it seems to be a consequence of very active mobilization around caste issues uh, that has exerted that kind of pressure on political parties and on political processes enough that, you know, as I said, we have this remarkable rise of the uh, presence of OBCs in legislatures and parliament. So it's a very interesting kind of uh, paradox, if you like, that, you know, it is only uh, if there is going to be a compulsory uh, sort of, you know, um, if there is a law which enjoins all political parties to field women candidates, will they be actually fielded? Talk to us a little bit about what has changed in, in uh, say, the last 25 years or so since the bill was first introduced. You told us a little bit about how it was derided and mocked when it was first brought in. And how much of that change now that it has been passed is rhetoric and how much is there are going to be actual change on the ground when it comes to, as you said, political parties actually fielding women candidates. Okay, let's be clear about what has happened. What has been passed is uh, a law which is a promise of, for the future. This Nari Shakti Vandan Adhinaya is actually something that is postponed indefinitely. Because without the um, delimitation exercise being undertaken, which cannot be undertaken till after 19, uh, sorry, 2026, and therefore uh, uh, only after the uh, census of 2031, which is 
which may or may not happen. As you know, we have not had a 21 census and it's a mystery why that has not happened. Um, so there's been an indefinite postponement. The bill, the law has to be greeted very cautiously. That is why some parties have said it made it a uh, poll promise that they will actually implement uh, women's reservations if they come to power. And I think that's a good sign. I mean, it's exerted a certain kind of pressure that will uh, that has publicized this um, once more in a way that makes it, uh, it necessary for people to take it more seriously. Um, but the second question of sub-quota has not been addressed at all. And it is a surprise uh, that uh, most of the parties which were quite vociferous about opposing women's reservation on these grounds have remained somewhat silent at this point. So I don't know what, maybe because it is a post-dated check as somebody uh, aptly called it, maybe because it's postponed indefinitely, everybody feels comfortable about uh, being able to address the issues as and when they come up. But there really should have been a similar discussion about caste and caste quota, even in this bill. So it is something of a surprise. And, and, and to be frank, the women's movement is a little bit on the weaker uh, side at this moment. It is not as uh, strong as it might have been in the 1980s and 1990s. And therefore, and, and this weakening, I think, also means that they have not been able to participate in this, uh, in this discussion as perhaps they should have. But at least on the, on the part of those who've done studies of women's participation, as I said, in local bodies and also in, uh, in you know, uh, of uh, reservations as they worked in other countries and so on and so forth, the representation of women in different uh, legislative bodies in other countries, that has clearly demonstrated the necessity of this kind of uh, act. So there's no two, two uh, there's no doubt about the necessity and importance of this act. Um, what has changed in the last 25 years, as you can as you can see from the timing of the passage of this, is nothing much. So it is really, uh, I mean, nothing much in terms of what uh, is perceived as the political capability of women, even though we have large numbers of women who have been visible. So we have this hyper-visibility of certain women, as you know, throughout our uh, 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 political existence since independence, and this is true of all the South Asian countries, there's been a hyper-visibility of certain kinds of women in public life, uh, alongside this very, very poor representation of women more generally in the legislatures and parliament. And that paradox also has to be in some ways understood. So somewhere there is uh, actually not that much difference in terms of uh, uh, demand for women's uh, representation, except in some regional sort of, sort of instances. Um, but by and large, the women's movement has remained a little disjunct from the realm of political parties. And I have to say that even the left parties, which you would expect to have uh, a somewhat more progressive agenda and so on, have not done very well on the question of representation of women in uh, you know, putting up women candidates and so on, so supporting them and so on. So, uh, and this runs across the institutional spaces. So you have, uh, you know, um, the, the, the parties and their uh, coordination committees, their uh, the whatever kinds of caste organizations and their uh, 
you know, uh, constituent bodies and so on, all of them are male dominated in a way and have not actually addressed this question of whether the representation of women is necessary and if so, how it should and can be enabled. And you can see this very clearly even in the very, uh, you know, even small things like if I can give the example of these, uh, the Kannada Sanghas and the kinds of postering that they have at every street corner in uh, a city like Bangalore, it would be completely filled with uh, faces of men who are active in the language associations, in the caste associations, in the political parties, in the temple associations itself. So there is this hyper-masculine public life uh, which women have not been able to penetrate uh, at any level. So that's why I say there are two aspects to be considered here. One is the legislation itself, and that's a welcome legislation, although this post-stated thing is a bit of a shock. But the other is a more general kind of social revolution that has to take place in order to, for women to be politically more active at all these levels, at the level of caste associations, language associations, neighborhood associations, and so on and so forth all of which contributes to uh, the space for women in public life. So, you know, that's what I would say. There are two, two distinct things that we need to think about here. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Professor. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.